0: The following program is brought to you in living color on WTDR. For the next hour, sit quietly and we will control all that you see and hear. You are about to participate in a great adventure.
1: I can feel it.
0: It's beautiful. God,
1: it's God. I see God.
0: It's prosperous The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Good night and good luck.
1: What if the old mythological stories of cataclysmic flooding and ancient advanced civilization are actually true, and that the current 100-year-old archaeological story of human history is wrong? Good morning. This week on the Magical Mystery Tour, a fascinating interview with Graham Hancock, journalist and best-selling author of many books, including fingerprints of the gods, the message of the Sphinx, and most recently, magicians of the gods, the forgotten wisdom of Earth's lost civilization, a book which lays out the latest geological and archaeological discoveries and evidence that is rewriting the archaeological story of ancient human history, and gives factual credence to what were previously only considered to be mythological stories of cataclysmic flooding and the existence of an advanced civilization over 13,000 years ago. Stay with us for this fascinating interview I did with Graham Hancock a few days ago. That's coming up right after this gorgeous piece of music from the upcoming documentary film, Human, which will be opening in theaters next Friday on Christmas Day.
0: هر زره اگر خوش است اگر محزون است سرگشته خوشیده خوشه
1: fascinating book. Twenty years ago, you wrote Fingerprints of the Gods, an investigation into the mysteries and evidence of a lost civilization here on Earth. And your new book, Magicians of the Gods, which incorporates the latest scientific and archaeological evidence, which has only recently come to light, that answers the question of what would have caused their disappearance.
0: And, and presents uh, a lot of new archaeological evidence that supports the existence of an advanced civilization during the Ice Age when, according to mainstream archaeology, our ancestors are simply supposed to have been nomadic hunter-gatherers with no civilization at all.
1: Right. And by laying out a very strong case for the catastrophic events that up until then were just the stuff of legend and mythology...
0: That's right. This is one of the main reasons that I've written Magicians of the Gods. As you rightly say, my best-known book is Fingerprints of the Gods, and it was published 20 years ago. I wouldn't have gone back to the subject if there weren't a mass of new information available that hasn't yet really been properly put before the public, and part of that information, a very important part of it actually, concerns scientific documentation, solid scientific evidence, not fringe science, but absolutely mainstream science, which demonstrates that a global cataclysm unfolded on this planet between 12,800 and 11,600 years ago. Now, that's exactly the window in time that I pointed at when I wrote Fingerprints of the Gods. But at, way back 20 years ago, I couldn't be sure what the cataclysm was. It was just that it was obvious that the world had been through a very difficult time at the end of the last ice age since then, and particularly since 2007, published in you know, mainstream scientific journals like the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences and the Journal of Geology, the Monthly Notices of the Royal Astronomical Society, and so on and so forth has been a a mass of evidence that documents the exact nature of this cataclysm. And we now know that about 20,000 years ago, a very large comet was drawn into the inner solar system and was captured in an orbit around the sun that crosses the orbit of the Earth. It's well known that comets do break up into multiple fragments. Unlike asteroids, comets are large chunks of rock bound together by ice. And these icy connections between the chunks of rock make comets susceptible to, to breakup. And really anybody who remembers the year 1994 and was watching television then will probably remember the events that surrounded Comet Shoemaker-Levy 9. It wasn't a very large comet. It was about two kilometers in diameter and it pounded into the planet Jupiter in 1994. Shoemaker-Levy 9 broke up into about 20 fragments, and the NASA imaging of the time showed those glowing lethal fragments in the um, immediate uh, vicinity of Jupiter, and then how they were drawn down into Jupiter and smashed into the, into the planet with absolutely devastating effect. So it's not in dispute that that comets are objects that break up into multiple fragments. Well, the evidence concerning the Earth, the new science that's been coming out uh, since 2007, is that a very large comet, estimated to be perhaps 100 miles in diameter, a really big one, was drawn into the inner solar system, went into an orbit around the Sun that crossed the orbit of the Earth and began to break up into multiple fragments. And those fragments then spread out around the entire orbit of the comet, which the Earth crosses twice a year. As a matter of fact, even today, we still cross the debris stream of this same comet. And we call that debris stream the Torrid Meteor Shower. 12,800 years ago, several large fragments from the comet fell out of the sky and hit the Earth with the primary impacts on what was then the North American ice cap this was the ice age 12,800 years ago north america north of roughly minnesota was still covered with ice that was about 2 miles deep and and there were colossal impacts on that ice cap but they didn't stop there the comet came in on a trajectory running roughly northwest to southeast It crossed North America, imposing cataclysmic impacts on the North American ice cap. It then crossed the Atlantic Ocean. There were further fragments hit the northern European ice cap, and other fragments fell as far east as Syria. So it was a truly global uh, event. It affected about 50 million square kilometers of the Earth's surface. And uh, it unleashed a cataclysm. It's it's really, unless one did witness the Shoemaker-Levy events on Jupiter in 1994, it's hard to imagine how devastating these comet impacts are. But if you were to take the entire nuclear arsenal of the Earth and blow it all up at once, it would just be a tiny fraction of the size of the explosive power of just one of the fragments of a comet like this. They're, They're very, very bad things when they hit a planet. So 12,800 years ago, we had a series of impacts primarily on the North American ice cap. That unleashed a flood of icy meltwater into the Atlantic Ocean, where it stopped the Gulf Stream dead in its tracks. Now, the Gulf Stream is part of what's called the global meridional circulation of this planet. It's effectively the central heating system of planet Earth. And when the Gulf Stream was stopped 12,800 years ago, global temperatures plunged very rapidly into a, into a period of intense, freezing cold. This lasted for 1,200 years until 11,600 years ago, when equally suddenly, and until recently equally mysteriously, global temperatures shot up again of, of an order way beyond anything that we're envisaging in terms of global warming today. And that second event, 11,600 years ago, was accompanied by a massive sea level rise Geologists call it Meltwater Pulse 1b. And again, a a global cataclysm uh, unfolded. We now know what caused both of these events. The first event, 12,800 years ago, was caused by comet fragments hitting the North American ice cap primarily. The second event was caused by further fragments of the same comet splashing down into the Pacific Ocean and throwing up a vast cloud of water vapor into the upper atmosphere created a greenhouse effect and and accounted for the very radical warming that occurred at that time. And that's not the end of it. There were further impacts from the same comet, the same fragmentation debris of the comet in the Bronze Age. And the most recent impact was as recent as 1908. And it occurred on the 30th of June 1908 over, fortunately, an uninhabited area of Siberia. This is the so-called Tunguska event the object wasn't very large. It was just about a hundred meters wide. It didn't even hit the ground. It exploded in the air about five kilometers above the ground, but it flattened 80 million trees across an area larger than greater London. And had it happened over a center of urban population, the loss of life would have been horrendous, and we would all be paying much more attention to the torrid meteor stream than we are today. So in summary, the original giant comet that formed the torrid meteor stream has been a hidden hand operating in human history for at least the last 13,000 years, and it caused a series of global cataclysms at the end of the Ice Age. Those cataclysms were accompanied by massive extinction of animal species, and I argue in Magicians of the Gods that they also wiped out an advanced civilization of prehistoric antiquity, that is now only remembered in myths and legends.
1: So do we know if there were any survivors from that lost civilization?
0: Yes, it's clear that there were survivors, and those survivors were then responsible for an attempt to restart civilization. Now I just need to back up a little bit and make the point that we ourselves live in an advanced civilization today an advanced technological civilization that's global in its extent. However, we coexist on the planet with hunter-gatherers. There are hunter-gatherers in the Amazon Basin, for example, who who don't even know that we exist, uh, so-called uncontacted tribes. And there are hunter-gatherers in the Kalahari Desert, to give another example. So the the notion of an advanced civilization coexisting with hunter-gatherers shouldn't be all that strange to us, because that's what happens in the world today. And my suggestion is that that was the case uh, 12,800 years ago, when the first spike of this cataclysm was unleashed by the comet impacts. The The whole process lasted for 1,200 years. I think the lost civilization that I'm documenting in Magicians of the Gods clung on during those 1,200 years. But the second series of impacts, 11,600 years ago, were what finally finished them off and the massive sea level rise that we know occurred then. And at that point, there were survivors, and those survivors set about traveling the world and seeking to restart, to, to reinitiate the project of civilization. And the places they went to were places that were inhabited by hunter gatherers. And they settled down amongst those hunter gatherers, perhaps even took refuge amongst them, because hunter gatherers have much better survival skills than civilized, so called civilized people have. But these uh, survivors thought to pass on what they knew, some of their technology, some of their ideas. And that's why a site like uh, Gobekli Tepe in Turkey, only discovered in the second half of the 1990s, is literally rewriting history. Because that's a huge megalithic site with giant stone pillars in the range of 20 to 50 tons with extremely precise, almost scientific, astronomical alignments. You know, it's a site that has the look of something like Stonehenge in England, but it's 50 times larger than Stonehenge, and it's 7,000 years older. And there's really no explanation for how a place like this just suddenly pops up in a hunter-gatherer context intact and fully formed with the very best work being done at the beginning. No explanation unless we consider the possibility of a lost civilization and look at Gobekli Tepe as uh, effectively a transfer of technology that the survivors of the lost civilization settled in Turkey amongst hunter-gatherers and sought to teach those hunter-gatherers some of what they knew and perhaps used this incredible megalithic site as a a sort of center of innovation to draw in the local population, to occupy them and to provide them with training and teaching. And that's why it's also equally mysterious that at the same moment, 11,600 years ago, that we know the second spike of the cataclysm occurred, that we know Gobekli Tepe was established with its mysterious out-of-place megalithic architecture. We also know that agriculture suddenly appears in that same region of Turkey at exactly that same moment. And and I think rather than the notion of a group of hunter-gatherers waking up one morning somehow magically equipped with the motivation and the skills to create the largest, most scientific megalithic site ever seen on earth, And just on the side, inventing agriculture, I think a more likely explanation is that this is a transfer of technology that we're looking at the the work, the handiwork, the fingerprints, if you like, of the survivors of a lost civilization teaching the local population what they knew.
1: So why is this such a controversial issue in the archaeological world?
0: Yeah, it's a deeply controversial issue because it it butts right up against an established model of the origins of civilization, a model that archaeologists have been working with for a hundred years. In the view of archaeologists, there were only hunter-gatherers in the world during the Ice Age. There was no civilization then. Civilization is supposed to have begun after that. With the first agriculture, providing the opportunity for peoples who were previously nomadic to settle down, uh, to start to generate surpluses, to begin to build up their economies. Once you have a society that produces surpluses, then specialists can emerge, including specialists, stonemasons, specialist astronomers and so on, they can be supported by the efforts of the agricultural workers and they can be deployed in creating large scale architectural sites. And and gradually this process goes on through the so called Neolithic into the first cities around five and a half thousand years ago and onwards from there with increasing technological sophistication until we arrive at, you know, smart old us sitting here supposedly at the top of the historical pile in the 21st century. Actually, I think that model of the origins of civilization is quite ideological in its impact because it encourages us to see ourselves as what the human story has been all about. And many archeologists have invested their careers in it. They are absolutely positively sure that there couldn't possibly have been any lost civilization that they would have missed. And it's annoying to them when somebody like me, basically a journalist, comes along and says, well, look, I think you actually have missed something. And in particular, I think what's annoying is this new evidence for a global cataclysm between 12,800 and 11,600 years ago, which is right in the foundations of the house of history that has been built by archeologists and historians but which they've not yet taken into account. It makes them look caught out. It makes them look like they've missed something very important, and nobody likes that. I don't think it's sinister. I don't think it's a plot. I don't think it's a conspiracy. It's just that in academic fields of study, when individuals get deeply committed to a particular point of view, it's very difficult to let that point of view go, particularly when an outsider is involved in expressing it. It's much easier just to stick with the existing point of view and try to dismiss the new evidence. And that's what's happening at the moment. But at the end of the day, this doesn't come down to a, you know, to a personal dispute between me and archaeologists. It comes down to the balance of the evidence. And what I'm saying is that we now have so much new evidence that sheds light on this problem that archaeology really does need to begin take it into account. They can't say that they've got the whole story of the origins of civilization worked out and then, but whoops, you know, we missed this extinction-level cataclysm that occurred right in the backyard of history. They have to consider the possibility that that extinction-level cataclysm may have had an impact on the human story, and that's what I'm urging them to do.
1: And do you think it's particularly difficult for them to accept this kind of thing considering that much of this corresponds with mythologies and legends from all over
0: well, the world? Yes. yes. you're absolutely right. And, 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 of course, a particular element of it, which, you know, which, which all archaeologists would detest, is, for example, the story of the flood of Noah hmm. uh, in the Bible. I mean, archaeology has uh, attempted to separate itself rigorously from anything that smacks of superstition or religious faith, but we are talking here about the single greatest flood in the history of the world that was unleashed by that cataclysm 12,800 years ago. And that does sound an awful lot like the flood of Noah. So the knee-jerk reaction of archeologists is just to laugh at it and dismiss it, but they can't go on doing that for much longer. They really do need to get to grips with the science. As I say, it is mainstream science, not fringe science. They need to read the papers that have been published, and look at the evidence in detail, and consider what it means for the story we're told about the origins of civilization. And yes, you're right, it's not only the flood of Noah in the Bible. I mean, that's just one of 2,000 so-called flood myths that are told all around the world. And it has been the posture of archaeology up to now that there's no truth to those myths, that it's simply something our ancestors made up, either for religious reasons or, or, or just for storytelling reasons. But now we have the latest science. We know about Meltwater Pulse 1b 11,600 years ago. We know about the sudden rise of sea level. We know that sea levels are 400 feet higher today than they were at the end of the Ice Age. And, and I don't think it's reasonable to go on dismissing those myths that speak of a global flood, of a global cataclysm, and of the destruction of a high civilization. I don't think it's reasonable to go on dismissing that in the light of the new evidence that's now available to all of us.
1: Mm. I particularly find this whole thing fascinating because of all the connections between the latest evidence and all of these mythological stories, which are fascinating all by themselves, but when they become anchored in, in our actual factual history, that really changes everything.
0: I think it does. Yeah. I, I think it does. I, I, think it, I think it tells us that... That we have to take a much broader view of our past and that we need to regard so-called mythology as perhaps the only memories that our species have preserved of, of a time of such a horrendous global cataclysm, that mankind was literally forced to begin again like children, with no memory of what went before. And that phrase that I've just mankind forced to begin again like children with no memory of what went before. That isn't actually my phrase. That's a phrase of the Greek philosopher Plato. Mm. Uh, And Plato uses that phrase in his account of the lost civilization of Atlantis. And of course, archaeologists don't take Atlantis seriously. They, They claim that Plato, you know, made the whole thing up because they as archaeologists believe that there could have been no lost civilization in prehistoric antiquity. The Plato account is absolutely fascinating. It puts a date on the cataclysm. Plato said he got the story through his ancestor, Solon. And Solon had visited Egypt in 600 BC, and then the story was passed down in Plato's family line until it reached Plato. And Solon, when he was in Egypt, said that he had been told the story of Atlantis by Egyptian priests. And when he asked them, When did it happen? When when was Atlantis destroyed? They said 9,000 years ago. Now, that was in 600 B.C., so we're talking about 9,600 B.C. And 9,600 B.C. is 11,600 years before our time, 11,600 years ago. And that, we now know, is an incredibly significant date. It's the date of the second spike of the cataclysm, It's the date of meltwater pulse 1b when sea level rose incredibly rapidly all around the world. It's the date of the foundation of Gobekli Tepe in Turkey. And, you know, if Plato made the whole thing up, as he's been accused of doing, then he was astonishingly on the money with the latest science. So, again, I think what's coming out of the woodwork is is evidence that is going to compel us to take... The myths and traditions much more seriously, and to use them more effectively as a guideline for understanding the huge parts of our past that have been rubbed away and that have left us almost as a as a species with amnesia.
1: Mm. This fascinating legend of Atlantis—it's something that that has to lurk in the at the very least in the subconscious of humanity, and so. and there are lots of other. Mythologies that seem to be talking about Atlantis or similar, yes,
0: by any other name, they may use different names right. for the same place. When you get to grips with the accounts, you find that they are actually talking about exactly the same thing. There's, a, for example, in southern India, which is a place that I spent a great deal of time. There's a fascinating account about a lost land called Kumari Kandam. And the Indian traditions in in Tamil Nadu in, in southern India maintain that in the distant past, India stretched much further south into the Indian Ocean than it does today, but that there was a cataclysm which resulted in those lands being suddenly submerged beneath the sea. And when they were submerged beneath the sea, they took down an advanced civilization that existed on those lands this whole tradition is referred to as the Sangam tradition and it reports that an advanced civilization there with with universities with technology with arts and architecture with philosophy and that it was destroyed in this cataclysm and again what's fascinating about the Kumari Sangam tradition is that it puts a date on this and the date's exactly the same date as the date Plato gives us which translates to 11,600 years before our time and you know this is true All around the world, so many different traditions all pointing in the same direction, and all of them studiously ignored by archaeology up till now. And archaeology has been able to get away with that because nobody has been able to document exactly what the cataclysm was. But now, since 2007, thanks to the work of a very major group of mainstream scientists, we have that documentation. They have absolutely proved that the Earth was hit by comet fragments 12,800 years ago, and again 11,600 years ago, that this truly was a a global cataclysm. But they are Earth scientists, they're geologists, they haven't concerned themselves with the historical implications of this. And I think my book, Magicians of the Gods, is the very first time that the implications for human history of this cataclysmic series of events have been properly considered.
1: So why did you choose to call them the magicians of the gods.
0: Right. Well, that's actually a quotation from multiple ancient texts. All around the world, we find traditions of this cataclysm, and then we find traditions typically of seven sages, seven wise individuals who survive the cataclysm, and who make it their project to attempt to restart civilization and settle amongst other less developed peoples who have also survived and seek to pass on the knowledge of civilization to them. And these seven sages are again and again referred to as magicians or sorcerers. And they're said to have had advanced scientific knowledge. They knew about how to lay out buildings. They knew how to create large architectural monuments. They, they were masters of astronomy They taught all the skills of agriculture to people who previously had not had agricultural skills. They had advanced medical knowledge and abilities. And again and again in the ancient texts, they're referred to as the magicians of the gods. And that's where I got the title of the book from. As a matter of fact, it's interesting that this notion of seven sages is found all around the world. We find it in India in the Vedic texts. We read how seven sages survived the cataclysm, and set about afterwards to attempt to re-establish civilization and to re-promulgate the knowledge that was lost in the flood. And we find exactly the same account in ancient Mesopotamia, in the high civilization of Sumer, where again, seven sages, the magicians of the gods, are referred to in great detail. And we find it as far away as tiny Easter Island in the Pacific, which is said to have been founded by seven sages. So there's something going on here. And I think I think what we're looking at is a memory of of a time when the, the survivors of the lost civilization sent out bands of uh, groups of seven people uh, all around the world, different groups of seven people, to teach the skills of civilization to the hunter gatherers who had survived. And this then got codified in myths and traditions and has been passed down through oral tradition ever since and and reaches us today where our historians and archaeologists make the mistake of assuming that it's all just fantasy.
1: And in addition to knowledge of agriculture and architecture and astronomy and mathematics, they also apparently were able to do some things that would be considered magical by many standards, particularly in the stone structures down in South America.
0: Well, exactly. Uh, in, 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 in South America and, and in other places, such as the just absolutely incredible site of Baalbek in the Lebanon. I visited many different countries while I was researching Magicians of the Gods. I, I did travel extensively in South America, particularly in the Andes. I, I traveled extensively in Egypt and in Turkey. I visited Indonesia, where there's a huge archaeological story breaking right now. And I visited the Lebanon, which, of course, is a war zone. It was a slightly risky visit, but it was really worth visiting to see the extraordinary structure that stands there in Baalbek, just a few kilometers from the Syrian border. A giant megalithic wall, which includes in it uh, three blocks that weigh 900 tons each. I mean, it's hard to wrap our heads around 900 tons. But, you know, think of like uh, 700 SUVs. That's roughly the weight of 900 tons. And there are three blocks each weighing 900 tons that are laid so closely together that you can't even get a sheet of paper into the joints between them. And they're raised 30 feet above the ground. And likewise, on the other side of the world, if you go to Sacsayhuaman, in the Andes in Peru, you see this huge series of zigzag megalithic walls with blocks of stone weighing, certainly some of them in excess of 360 tons, which are just incredibly, um, it's almost unbelievable how this work was done. They're they're gigantic three-dimensional jigsaw puzzles with multiple angles and joints all interlocking in a very clever and, and almost impossible way. And the problem is, you see, that archaeology has just given all of these sites to relatively recent cultures. In the case of South America, they say the Incas made them all, although the Incas themselves never claimed that. The Incas, it is clear, found these sites already there and simply built their own much less advanced architecture around them and on top of them. And This has perhaps confused the archaeological record, but it's clear to me that these giant megalithic sites date back to a much, much older period. And they bear witness to a level of technology that we would find very hard to duplicate today. It's not that we can't lift 900-ton blocks, because we can, with uh, really complex, incredibly expensive cranes. But it takes about six weeks to put one of those cranes into place for a single lift, and then you have to move it for every other lift. And it's very difficult for us to do. But when you look at the work that was done in the ancient world, it's clear that for somebody this was easy—that they were doing something they could they could easily do. And there are many accounts of these magicians of the gods effectively singing these blocks into place, as though some kind of technology that perhaps we don't understand, involving the use of sound, was deployed to perhaps to change the the vibration, the the, the frequency. Of the blocks that are to be moved and to make them effectively levitate i know it sounds like an extraordinary idea but you know we're getting to the point where we have to listen more carefully to these myths and traditions and and likewise in the andes when you look at the walls at Sacsayhuaman and the way that these huge three-dimensional blocks are joined onto one another across multiple angles well the suggestion in the local myths and traditions is that there was a technology for softening stone then that the stone could be softened and molded almost like play-doh or putty. And then that's why it was so easy to form it into these very complex patterns. And then afterwards, the stone hardened into the form we see it today. And one piece of recent scientific research that I report in the book on, on precisely Sacsayhuaman in the Andes is evidence that those stones were indeed subjected to extremely high temperatures, which might have been exactly what was needed to soften the stone and make it possible to mold it in the way that it was.
1: When you say subjecting these stones to extremely high temperatures, what level of temperatures are you talking about? Around
0: about 1,000 degrees centigrade.
1: Okay, and are there any known technologies in those local areas that could do that?
0: No, there aren't. That's part of the problem. Uh, And although we could heat stones up to that temperature today, we don't have the follow-on technology to do anything with them. In that case, I, I, I again and again, I find myself looking at evidence of technologies that we don't fully understand. You know, our civilization has gone very much down the path of mechanical advantage, and we're very good at that. We're very good at making machinery, but I think we have to consider the possibility that in that process we have allowed powerful faculties of the human mind to lapse. Mm. Um, and, and I, I have evidence of this in my own life. I mean, 20 years ago, I used to be an excellent map reader. But today, I rely entirely on GPS. And, and uh, you know, I don't even look where I'm going anymore. I just set the GPS and go. Even even to areas quite close to my home, I've become so lazy. Now, when I put a map in front of me, I, I'm, I'm a bit puzzled by it, you know. And I think that this is a problem with our society, that we rely so much on our machinery that other faculties of the human mind that are incredibly important have effectively gone to sleep. So we have to consider also ancient traditions of powers like uh, telekinesis, the ability to move objects with the power of the mind, which from time to time we still get anecdotal evidence of. I think these abilities are present in all human beings, but that we're not using them, we're not deploying them anymore. And my thought is with an ancient and a lost civilization that that was a civilization where these mysterious powers of the human mind were focused
1: upon and were cultivated and and people were trained in how to use them. And this also would help to explain some of the mysteries of the ancient archeological sites. In that statement that you make about us being a species with amnesia, a species that has forgotten where we come from and who we are, we have become so fixated on what you were just talking about, this very mechanistic and materialist way of relating to the world around us. And it seems as though we should know better, that there is yeah. so much more to the human experience than just the physicality of things.
0: Absolutely. This is this is a, a crisis in modern society, in my view. We've become... So materialistic, and I I say that not only in terms of our attachment to material goods and and the, the false idea that we only exist in order to produce and consume things, but also at a deeper level, many of us have been persuaded to believe that there's nothing more to reality than matter, that everything can be reduced to matter. You can meet scientists who will tell you that even human consciousness just an epiphenomenon of brain activity. It can all just be reduced to the functioning of the brain. And they state that very confidently as though it's some kind of established empirical fact, but it's not an established empirical fact. Consciousness is the probably the greatest mystery of science. We right. have never explained how, in what way, these sort of three or four pounds of jelly inside our skulls interface with, with consciousness. The, the default assumption is that our brains make or manufacture consciousness. But that may not be true at all. The, the relationship of consciousness to the brain may be more like the relationship of a TV signal to a TV set. And the TV set is, is not making the images. The, the images are inherent in the signal. And, of course, if the TV set is broken, the TV signal still remains. So, you know, scientists who think that everything can be reduced to matter are convinced, for example, that there is no life after death. In their reference frame, there can't be, because when the brain is dead, that's the end of consciousness. But that may not be the case at all, and many ancient civilizations held a very different view that we are spirits that we are incarnated in human bodies here to have a particular kind of experience to learn and to grow and to develop but our essence is immortal and immaterial and non-physical and I suspect that we are going to find that consciousness is one of the fundamental forces of the universe on on a par with gravity and electricity it's probably what the universe is all about
1: I agree with you on that point and in the meantime We're up against a society and academia and institutions that insist that everything can be explained in materialist terms, and anything that that can't be explained in materialist terms isn't real, doesn't exist.
0: Yeah, and that's one of the great illusions of modern science. And fortunately, not all scientists feel that way. But there's a faction within science, and they are rightly referred to as materialist reductionists, who are very powerful and who do hold that view. And they mock and ridicule anybody who suggests that there may be a deeper mystery behind all of this. And I think in so doing, they're endangering us all and they're leading us into an illusion. They say that everything that isn't material is illusory, whereas in fact the ancients held that it is the material world which is illusion. Uh, and it is the world beyond our senses that is real and permanent. The material world is impermanent. It constantly passes away. It constantly changes. It never endures, not in the same form. But the non-physical, the non-material aspect of reality, that is what is real in the view of ancient civilization. So we may be keeping our eye on the illusion rather than on the reality. And this is encouraged by scientists who are convinced that they have the truth that their materialist reductionism is true and they're such arrogant people and so ready to to criticize and condemn others who hold different views and even to censor others for holding different views. And we need to move away from this new religion of materialism and, and recover our lost roots. And that's partly why, again, I've written Magicians of the Gods because I think only by recovering the truth about our past will we be in a strong position to move forward confidently into the future.
1: Yes, and I call that faction of science the Church of the Double Blind.
0: The Church of the Double Blind, good one. Uh, I, I have a friend, John Anthony West, who calls it the Church of Progress. Either way, it's a church, which is uh, devoted to an almost fanatical, religious, unevidenced belief in uh, propositions like all of reality can be reduced to matter, which is not a fact. It's just a belief system. Or statements like a chap like, you know, Richard Dawkins, the author of a book called The Selfish Gene, you know, Dawkins will say with absolute confidence, there is no life after death. But I, you know, I wonder how he knows that. I mean, that's not based on any scientific observations whatsoever. It's just his own particularly narrow religious belief that he has deep fanatical faith in, that he seeks to convert others to, but which is not based on any facts. And On the contrary, there are many facts that, are, that oppose it, a huge amount of anecdotal evidence concerning reincarnation, for example, concerning out-of-body experiences, concerning telepathy. All of these things suggest that consciousness is not confined to the body or is not made by the body, but that the body is simply a temporary housing for consciousness. But such ideas are, you know, are dismissed with ridicule by mainstream science, and they say, oh, this is all woo-woo, and they use that word, and they, they say that people who even say such things are pseudoscientists, and there's all kinds of techniques, propaganda techniques, that are used to ridicule and dismiss ideas like this, and in my view, ideas like this, it's desperately important that we explore them further.
1: I totally agree, and unfortunately, they've really put themselves in quite a double bind, in that they've, yeah. they've boxed themselves into a materialistic view where all their instruments, all their abilities to apply the quote-unquote scientific method are based solely on materialist principles, and therefore it, by definition, eliminates any possible observations of anything outside of material existence.
0: Exactly, exactly. You're quite right. Which is
1: a kind of intellectual suicide. Uh,
0: Yeah, Ultimately, ultimately it is. It's a dead end. It leads absolutely nowhere and it's deeply harmful i think to the human experience that we've been gifted this majestic planet upon which to live out the human experience we have the the incredible privilege of being born in a human body to make fine distinctions between good and evil to understand beauty to understand love and all of this is just dismissed as as a kind of accidental byproduct of matter by these scientists and as a result we're we're failing to explore the deepest and most important parts of ourselves.
1: Right, the ability to to choose what we create yeah. in this world, whether to create heaven or hell in our experience. Yes,
0: exactly. And that choice, is, that choice is always ours, even though we're persuaded to believe that it is not. Right. We all, as individuals, have the freedom to make that choice. It's, it's simply an illusion that we don't have that freedom, but we do have that freedom.
1: And that we're indoctrinated to believe that everything is based on random chaos. Random yes. randomness.
0: Yeah, that's, that's, that's right. Which, which, when you examine it, turns out to be uh, a kind of horrible religious idea. <laughs> yeah. Um, unevidenced, unsupported by any facts, uh, but, but uh, advanced
1: fanatically by, you know, quite a number of very powerful and influential scientists. Right, a kind of nihilism that even Nietzsche would completely reject.
0: Yeah exactly exactly this is this is why we need to you know to move forward as a species and to set this particular stage of our story behind us we have to remember that modern scientific society is a very recent invention yes um and and it's still it's still finding its seat. i mean the the the, the way that our technological society is so arrogant is really based on, on nothing because uh, set against the huge backdrop of human experience. It's a very recent thing, and why should we think that we're right, you know, and that everybody else in humanity for, for tens of thousands of years was, was wrong? Such an arrogant position.
1: Yes, especially when you consider that the history of science is the deposing of one system of beliefs for another. Exactly. Ra- it's a funny thing because
0: all all scientists, in theory, should know that. Yes. They all read, you know, Thomas Kuhn's *The Structure of Scientific Revolutions*, which documents very clearly that 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 there is no absolute truth in science. That that uh, today's today's science will be overthrown by tomorrow's science. Everything we hold to be true today will be found to be false tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is well well known and well understood. But yet, scientists continue to believe that everything that they think they know today is the whole truth. It's a very peculiar phenomenon. It's extremely um, peculiar. um, One we need to grow up from.
1: Yes, I would agree. Now, in Chapter 19, titled The Next Lost Civilization, you write, that we fit the bill for the next lost civilization. And you refer, yes. you refer to one common theme of the over 2,000 flood myths, that humanity was punished for some transgression. Yes. What transgression and punished by whom?
0: The transgression of pride and arrogance <laughs> and the punishment from the universe itself. Uh-huh. Um, and again, we can go back to Plato uh, for this and his account of Atlantis, and how Atlantis was once a great and good civilization, and how it was dedicated to the nurture of spirit, but that how, as time went by, it became corrupt, it became arrogant, it became cruel. It began to project its power around the world and to make war upon others. It became deeply attached to material things and in a ringing phrase it ceased to wear its prosperity with moderation and that plato suggests that hubris mm. on the part of atlantis brought about its nemesis was why the universe slapped it down and this is a very interesting situation when we look back on the new archaeological evidence that I've been talking about, that it was hunter-gatherers in the world of 13,000 years ago who survived the cataclysm, whereas it was largely the members of the advanced civilization that went down in the cataclysm. And I can't help feeling that, in many ways, we do tick all the boxes of the next lost civilization, our so-called advanced technological civilization today, if we were to confront a cataclysm on the same scale that occurred between 12,800 and 11,600 years ago, undoubtedly humanity would survive, but I don't think our advanced technological civilization would survive. It looks like a very strong civilization, uh, but actually it's not really strong. It's rather fragile. It's based on a complicated network of interlocking specialisms, Nobody, really, very few people in the world in the advanced technological societies have any idea how to survive. You know, they don't know how to plant crops. They don't know how to hunt and fish. They don't know how to build structures. They rely on the skills of others to do that. And that works all very well in, in a non-cataclysmic situation. But introduce a massive global cataclysm to the picture and our advanced technological societies would fall apart in a matter of weeks.
1: Right, eliminate satellites and Internet technology. Yeah, the
0: satellites would be down. There would be no, no, none of the communications upon which we rely on food supplies into the cities would stop within three days. The whole complex, fragile, interconnected network would fall apart. But who would survive such a cataclysm would be precisely the people that Plato said survived it 11,600 years ago. It would be the hunter-gatherers of the world, the, the meek of the Earth. The hunter gatherers of the Amazon rainforest, the hunter gatherers of the Kalahari Desert, who they do know how to survive. They are masters of survival. And they have no arrogance or pride. They humbly and quietly get on with their lives and live in harmony with nature. It's they who would survive such a cataclysm while our great civilization, so called great civilization, would go down. And 10,000 years from now, It would be the descendants of those hunter-gatherers who have carried the story of human civilization forward into the future, and they would tell a myth. They might speak of a time 10,000 years before when a great civilization flourished on this planet. It was incredibly advanced, so advanced, as a matter of fact, that they could even send human beings to the moon, and they could fly through the sky, and they could speak to one another on opposite sides of the planet. They had almost magical powers, but they became corrupt. They became cruel. They began to project their power around the world and make war on others. They became overattached to material things. They ceased to wear their prosperity with moderation, and so the universe struck them down. And the problem is that that lost civilization would be our own. And that's the the wisdom, I believe, that's been passed down from the past, that we should remember this, that we should not be so arrogant and so overconfident. We live in a complicated universe. We cannot take our security for granted. We need to make sure that we're not the next lost civilization. And if we're going to do that, then we need to change our ways very, very radically in the future.
1: Yes, and you talk about the likelihood of another comet or fragment of comet hitting the Earth again in the near future. What is the basis for that?
0: Well, again, I'm I'm working as a reporter here. Uh-huh. and I'm simply reporting the evidence that has been brought forward by quite a number of astronomers who have been studying what is called the Taurid Meteor Stream. And as I mentioned, the Taurid Meteor Stream is what is left of that giant comet that began to break up into fragments, some of which hit the Earth 12,800 years ago, some of which hit the Earth 11,600 years ago, further impacts in the Bronze Age, the most recent impact in 1908. The calculations of the astronomers are that there are still a number of very large bits of that former comet orbiting in the torrid meteor stream. Now, the torrid meteor stream is Huge. It's 30 million kilometers wide. The Earth orbits at the rate of 2.5 million kilometers a day. That means it takes us 12 days to pass through the torrid meteor stream, and we do so twice a year. We pass through it in at the end of June, and we pass through it again in November. Just a month ago, we were passing through the torrid meteor stream, and many people will have seen the the meteorites, the so-called. Halloween fireworks that come burning into the Earth's atmosphere at that time. Those are all very small bits of rock. They, they burn up in the atmosphere. They don't even hit the Earth. But the evidence of the astronomers is that there are some very large bits still in the torrid meteor stream, and that minute variations in the Earth's orbit are going to bring us into the path of those large bits during the next 40 years. So it's a bit like crossing an eight-lane interstate, you know, after strapping on a blindfold twice a year and just hoping that uh, we don't meet any traffic uh, or that if we do, it would be motorcycles rather than trucks. And the indications are that we're going to be meeting some heavy traffic in the next 40 years. And I say this, I report what the astronomers and the mathematician colleagues are saying, not to spread an atmosphere of doom and gloom because actually we already have the technology to sweep our cosmic environment clean We don't have to be the next lost civilization. We can uh, deploy that technology uh, in order to make our cosmic environment safe, to make the Earth safe for our children and our children's children and for future generations. But right now, we are spending the big money on military matters, on weapons of mass destruction, on just multiplying the fear and hatred and suspicion in the world on inventing ever more sophisticated ways to murder one another while at the same time we're spending roughly what it costs to run one mcdonald's a year on observing our cosmic environment and looking out for dangerous objects that might hit the earth so it's a choice we have the choice we can make the world safe But if we carry on with this mad, insane, unconscious behavior as a society where we're generating hatred and fear and suspicion in the world and and, and creating these horrible weapons of mass destruction and spending huge resources on that while we have our eye off the ball, then we may pay a heavy price for that. The choice is ours, as I say. No need for doom and gloom. We don't have to be the next lost civilization, but we do have to wake up.
1: So what is this technology that, that you refer to that can sweep the area around the Earth from these devastating comets and meteorites?
0: In fact, there are, there are 10 different technologies that have been invented. They just haven't been deployed yet because the cost would be very high, although frankly the cost would be minuscule by comparison with the cost that we spend on increasing our military footprint what you don't want to do with a fragment of comet or with an asteroid is is just blow it up that turns you know one large bullet into a lot of equally dangerous buckshot Mm -hmm. which can still hit the earth what you want to do is to gently shunt it out of its orbit and there are a number of established technologies that could do that some of them are very simple you paint one side of the object a lighter color than the other And that then causes the sun's rays to have a more powerful effect on one side than the other, and that can push it out of a dangerous orbit into a safe orbit. You can nudge it, just shunt it out of its orbit. You can use the solar wind to use something like a solar sail to move these objects. They don't have to be moved very much take them from a dangerous orbit into a safe orbit. And as I say, we have the technology already. It's just that we're not deploying it right now because
1: we much prefer to spend money on weapons of mass destruction. Yes, it seems like we are misplacing our priorities.
0: (laughs) Yes, we are a species not only with amnesia, but a species that has its priorities wrong. And Mm. I'm just hoping that my book in some small way will help to act as a wake-up call. I'm not alone in this field. The the, the scientists who've done the work on the impact 12,800 years ago are very concerned about this. A group of astronomers are very concerned about this. We do have a thing called World Asteroid Day, which is intended to draw public attention to the danger of these objects in space, but so far very few people are paying attention to it. This is going to have to change. And if it changes, and if we pay attention to it, the good news is we can do something about it. We don't have to just throw up our hands in despair and give up.
1: Mm. When is this World Asteroid Day?
0: It's every June.
1: Okay. Well, our hour went by pretty quickly.
0: It did, and it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. As I say, I hope that the book will have an impact. More information on the book can be found on my website, which is Graham Hancock. There's a lot of background there for the book, and we'll hope that it has some impact. World Asteroid Day, by the way, is on the 30th of June every year, and that is, in fact, the anniversary of the Tunguska event, which happened on the 30th of June, 1908, and which was an object out of the Taurid meteor stream.
1: Mm. It's been a great pleasure talking to you as well. The book was fascinating. I enjoyed it very much. And I I hope that uh, your book helps to wake us up as well.
0: Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on the show. It's been great to talk
1: to you. And that was Graham Hancock, author of Magicians of the Gods, The Forgotten Wisdom of Earth's Lost Civilization. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. This is a fascinating book. I really strongly urge you to read it if you are interested in ancient mythologies if you're interested in archaeology if you're interested in in science if you're interested in history these are all highly highly relevant aspects of the human experience and they all come together in this story of well the loss of civilization and Will we be the next lost civilization? Or will we wake up to the challenges that we are facing, that are appearing before us? Or will we stay asleep? And will we chase our tail around and insist that we know everything and that we know what is real and what is right? These are questions that are coming to a head at this time in our history. And Don't succumb to pride and hubris too easily. It's all well and good to take pride in what we do. But to take it too far and to insist and to believe that we know better than anyone else is arrogance, is insane in the face of what we're facing today. We should know better. Apparently we don't. It's time for us to grow up and learn some of the lessons from our mistakes so far. And to continue to do the same things over and over again, expecting a different result, is the very definition of insanity. As an early Christmas present or Hanukkah present. I have a copy of this book by Graham Hancock, The Magicians of the Gods, for any listener who would like to call me at 1-800-646-9437 or 454-7762. It's a hardbound book Copy. The book just came out a month ago and it could be yours by calling 1 800 646 9437 or 454 7762. everyone who called the phone has been ringing off the hook for the last five or so minutes and we had a winner for the book and it's very gratifying to know that there are people out there listening who are interested in in what they're hearing and enjoying it so thank you thank you for calling thank you for listening for anybody who may have missed part of it or would like to be able to listen to it again or share it with their friends this show will be available in the archive by going to wgdr.org and going to our SoundCloud archive our permanent SoundCloud archive and looking for the latest Magical Mystery Tour show where you can listen to it anytime you like and you can send links to it to anyone you like We're certainly living in interesting times these days, all these recent news of potential comets, cataclysmic events. A couple of weeks ago, interviewing Peter Navarro on the the potential threat of nuclear confrontation with a rising China and a weakening United States this ISIS crisis in the Middle East that is spreading into Europe and people here in this country starting to panic about the possibility of it spreading here. And who, uh, who knows what other things we'll, we'll create for ourselves. I'm going to read something from Byron Katie from a book entitled A Thousand Names for Joy Living in Harmony with the Way Things Are. This is sort of a a variation, sort of her version and her with her husband, Stephen Mitchell, a, a version of, or a variation of play on the Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu. And the title of this piece is, She Holds Nothing Back from Life, Therefore She's Ready for Death. How can anyone describe the indescribable or bring into existence what is just a mirror image of reality. There are names for it. Arm, leg, sun, moon, ground, salt, water, shirt, hair. Names that can only reflect the unseeable, the unknowable. There are many names that can never be named. When you oppose it, when you experience anything as separate or unacceptable, the result is suffering. And inquiry can bring you back to the peace you felt before you believed that thought. It can bring you back to the world prior to any problems, when there is no opposition, the colors no longer clash, music becomes beautiful again. No dance is out of step and every word is poetry reality is the always stable never disappointing base of experience when i look at what really is i can't find a me as i have no identity there's no one to resist death death is everything that has ever been dreamed including the dream of myself so at every moment i die of what has been and am continually reborn as awareness in the moment. And I die of that, and I am born of it again. The thought of death excites me. Everyone loves a good novel and looks forward to how it will end. It's not personal. After the death of the body, what identification will mind take on? The dream is over. I was absolute perfection. I could not have had a better life. And whatever I am is born in this moment as everything good that has ever lived. I know that there is never anything to lose, so it's easy for me to hold nothing back from life. And because I give it everything I have, my life is complete in every moment. There is never anything undone. There is no moment in my life when I am not complete. When I see only what's real, how can any experience be frustrating, even when I apparently fail, even when I'm apparently defeated? There is a constant appreciation and joy going on inside of me. How fascinating to see me baffled by technology, for example. I'm in an apartment in Amsterdam, and have been on the road for almost three months, living in hotel rooms. Finally, an apartment for six whole days in a row. It's near the park and it has a kitchen and a big living room overlooking a quiet square and heaven of heavens, a washing machine. It can't get any better than this. Hmm, with Fuchs dystrophy, sometimes I can see and sometimes I can't. And it's been a few days now since I could see clearly. And I absolutely cannot read the dial on the washing machine. So I wait, thinking that maybe in a couple of hours my eyes will clear up. Later I notice excitedly that I can read the dial well enough to see the words. Of course, the words are in Dutch. I call a Dutch friend and she translates for me. I guess that which bin to put the soap in. Who needs fabric softener anyway? And by the way, I hope this really is soap. And if it is, I hope it's for washing machines. I was given a detailed lesson on how to run this machine yesterday, so I have an idea of what to do, but I've forgotten some of the essential instructions. Oh well, I start the machine and I'm thrilled. Clean clothes. Three hours later, I take a peek. The machine is still going through its cycles and I have lost my vision again. Until the clothes spin and the correct cycle completes, the door on the washing machine won't open. So now I'm turning the dial by sound and my ear close to it, listening to the clicks like a safe cracker after the cycle ends the door still doesn't open i can't see the dial i can't figure out the machine i don't know what more to do i call Stephen in and he doesn't know what to do either there's a load of wet clothes in the washing machine the door won't open and i'm not sure if it was soap i put in or if it was the right dispenser or if the wet clothes are even clean. And I notice that I'm feeling calm, tickled actually, always watching mind and the way of it. There's nothing wrong. Everything is right. The thought that the machine could work or that the clothes could get clean never even occurs to me. I'm just watching where reality goes next. It's fascinating. Is the goal to wash clothes? Is the goal to wash the clothes in this machine? You never know. In another hour or two, we may be headed for an adventure at the laundromat up the street. Then suddenly, I remember that the landlord told me there's a little quirk to the washing machine. You have to turn the dial to a certain place to complete the cycle before the door will open. I turn it, the door opens, and finally, after five hours, voila, the laundry is done. about it for this magical mystery tour thank you all so much for joining me listening calling until next week this is wgdr plainfield and wgdh hardwick